The goal of Bantam Tools is to, is to make things worth making and explore the frontier and have a place to come to work where we get to work with each other and, it, and be on a team, right? So we're in this beautiful little town called Peekskill, about an hour and a bit north of the New York City. We're right on the Hudson River. I'm looking out the window onto the Hudson River. It's a, we probably have the best view of any manufacturing facility on the planet. And it's a, you know, it's a broken down industrial town, so it's affordable to live in, and there's great coffee. So what more could you ask for? Beauty, there's great, it's, there's a lot of, it's a diverse town, so we have a, a, a nice, like, mix of folks in, 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 both on our team and in the city, and good coffee, it's good stuff. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Additive Insight podcast. In November 2014, TCT introduced the Additive Manufacturing Industry's first podcast, launching with an episode that featured the makers of Netflix's exclusive 3D printing documentary, Print the Legend. Following the CEOs of MakerBot, Formlabs and 3D Systems, Print the Legend captured the zeitgeist of an industry at the peak of its hype cycle. 25 years on from 3D systems commercialization of 3D printing technology with the stereolithography process, the industry was starting to see the emergence of a wealth of startup companies, bringing to market more affordable machines in the desktop form factor. This ignited a spike in interest, investment and evangelism, with the Print the Legend film crew seeking to track the progress of the 3D printing industry's newcomers. A decade on from the documentary's production and to mark the 100th episode of the Additive Insight podcast, we welcome two of the movie's protagonists. Though Formlab CEO Max Lebowski declined to be interviewed, former MakerBot CEO Brie Pettis and former 3D Systems CEO Abby Reichenthal were happy to reflect on that period and share their learnings. say let's like go back in time you know we had started MakerBot in 2009 we'd started Thingiverse in 2008 mm. we had no idea what we were onto, right like we just were into it we were enthusiasts we were excited when we started MakerBot we thought it would be a side project I had tv stuff I was working on I had other I had, I had other projects and really quickly it took over our lives our first product was essentially a prototype. You know, if, if, if you remember those early MakerBots, they were made out of wood uh, that we cut on a laser cutter. They, um, we, we took this approach to engineering of trying the most affordable possible way first and then only improving it if it needed it. And we found out that we could make, you know, at the time, a 3D printer was like fifty dollars or $60,000. And we found out that we could assemble a kit for like $1,000. So we were onto something there. Um, uh, fast forward a little bit. I mean, I had a background in school teaching, so I'd manage students, but I hadn't, I, and I was the person with the most management skills on the team because of that. 
but uh, we were still all very green. And I think, and in, in one of the beautiful things about MakerBot is we didn't know what we couldn't do, and so we did it anyway. You know, none of us were engineers at the time, but we still wanted something. And so there's something inspiring to me when I think back about that time, very optimistic, very naive at the same time, but with a, a significant sprinkle of ambition over the whole thing. So um, fast forward a little bit. We launched the, the MakerBot Cupcake CNC, then the MakerBot Thingomatic, which had a automated build platform that rolled your prints out of it. And then we launched the MakerBot Replicator. This was still a, a wooden machine, but it was assembled. And things started to take off. I think the other thing that was important at this time was that we shifted. When we first started, we were, we were very, like, um, aspirational. Like, we thought if we could give everybody a 3D printer that could make more 3D printers, and, and then you could use those 3D printers to make everything you needed. We could just end capitalism as we know it, and we could deliver on one of the last dreams that isn't, isn't, it hasn't found its way into our culture from Star Trek, which was the end of money, right? Mm -hmm. So this is very pie-in-the-sky type of dreaming at the time. Um, by the time we get to the Replicator 1 at MakerBot, we've realized that uh, 3D printing is not for everybody. It's... It, it's it's not, we can't boil the, we couldn't boil the ocean as a marketing strategy to get to everybody, although we gave it a good go. And we found that engineers doing prototypes was sort of the sweet spot. And as a second sweet spot was developers, programmers who wanted to make their bits into atoms, wanted to make their uh, programs become real. So um, we embedded OpenSCAD, which is an open solid CAD modeling um, procedure, uh, uh, it's like a software package into Thingiverse. We made things configurable. We, we tried to serve that audience. And then we, we, then we really showcased the, the prototyping side of things. I think, you know, when, um, you know, this movie came along, and I'm really not in love with this movie. I'll be kind of up front. Mm -hmm. They came along and said, hey, we'd love to make a movie about MakerBot. We'd love to see, and they, they pitched me on this idea of like, what would it have been like if, you know, we could have, you know, if, if we could see things developing in real time, it would be very mm. exciting. Well, it happened quite uh, serendipitously. It wasn't, uh, you know, I was not part of it, and I didn't even know that uh, it was taking place until I showed up at uh, a TechCrunch Disrupt. Uh, <laughs> and at that uh, TechCrunch event, I was supposed to do a panel with uh, Max, and I think even with uh, Natan. And so we uh, we got together on stage and uh, we did the panel, which was uh, a good panel, I thought. It was kind of the early days touching on, uh, you know, the maker movement and the more democratization of 3D printing and so on. In uh, IP, which was a bone of contention, you know, between 3D systems and form labs at the time. So... <clears throat> And, but it was really well done. And uh, when I got off stage, the film crew approached me, introduced themselves, and kind of told me that they have been following Max and Brie for quite some time. They're doing this documentary. And they asked me if I was interested uh, in being part of it. So I reflected on it and I said, yeah, why not? Let's, uh, let's do it. And it turned out that they uh, lived not too far from where I did in uh, Los Angeles. So we got together a bunch of times and we 
started talking about it. And then we did an initial uh, filming of uh, some things that I was doing and 3D Systems was doing. And then they followed us to some uh, investor day in New York and so on. Uh, <clears throat> as the uh, filming unfolded, obviously, uh, their original intent to memorialize uh, kind of what was happening in the industry took a turn, you know, as they started to kind of uncover some of the, uh, I guess, cultural issues within MakerBot at the time and uh, kind of the uh, the journey that uh, that company took. About halfway through it, I realized they were making me out to be the bad guy. And the stories that they were focusing on mm -hmm. were the most dramatic ones so that they could sell their product. Whereas we were doing so many cool things and there were so many stories, they really focused on this story of me uh, shifting away from open source as like a betrayal of my roots. And I, I, it was such a disappointment to me because we were doing all this cool stuff. They had recorded hundreds of hours of footage and they had to have their, I guess they had to have their drama. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I, as soon as I realized that they were, they, they were, they didn't really understand what we were doing at MakerBot and were turning what we were doing into a drama instead of a documentary of the innovation we were doing, I pretty much lost interest. So um, I think what, I, I, in terms of the documentary, I don't think it was a very good documentary. I, I think the, the naming was bad, the branding was bad. In the beginning, I only saw all the reasons why not to do it. In in the sense that uh, in those days, I mean, you go back to, uh, if I recall, this this was uh, being filmed already in the 2011-2012 period, you know, as they were following Brie and Max. And uh, in, in those days, it wasn't that uh, popular or acceptable for publicly traded companies to... Uh, do all these kinds of informal, uh, call it uh, social media-ish type activities. It was all kind of new and uncharted territory. And I wasn't sure that uh, <clears throat> I wanted to take on that kind of, uh, call it a pioneering burden and see if it plays well or not. So I had certain reluctance uh, to do it. But as I was reflecting on it, I realized that it's an opportunity to explain the journey of 3D systems, that it's an opportunity perhaps to uh, humanize the company somewhat. Uh, and it's an opportunity to uh, tell our story. So I, you know, at the end, I kind of opted to, to do it. And I have to admit, uh, it, it took me out of my comfort zone in the beginning, for sure. Just like many things took me out of my comfort zone in that period. Yeah, it was uh, really uh, a period in which 3D printing kind of for the first time got discovered, if you will, by Main Street and no, in no small part due to that uh, famous Economist article that, that, that came out, right? Uh, play me instead of various, and or print me. I'm sorry, print me instead of various. And up until then, for us, it was like keep your head down and build a business and try to, you know, put it on the rail and make it grow. Uh, not to mention that uh, we were still kind of in the 
call it uh, PTSD of the 2008-2009 period in which uh, was a turning point for us at 3D Systems. That was like really the, the, the turning point after which we had a few incredible years. Uh, but all we were thinking about in those days is just, you know, how do we keep going forward? All these other activities, including, by the way, the red prop movement and discovering the power of the maker movement and so on, it was all new to me. This documentary coincided with what many would say was the peak of 3D printing's hype cycle. So how did it feel to be the CEO of one of the biggest companies in the industry at the time and to be one of the faces of this consumer 3D printing movement? Yeah, it, it felt like an awesome responsibility. I mean, in, 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 in the sense that uh, at that point in time, 3D systems was more than 20 years old. Uh, and for the people in the company and for Chuck Hall in particular, uh, you know, they, they haven't yet realized any uh, scale or success at that point in time. And uh, to be able to actually bring the company into profitability uh, and into scale and then to run it for uh 16 successive quarters of meeting and beating uh wall street expectations to get to be named i think in 2013 the second uh highest growth company in tech in the united states i mean th that was a pretty heady uh, period but to be honest with you we didn't look at any of those stats. We we're just focusing on, on, on building the business. And at the time we looked at our competitors as uh, mainly EOS and uh, Stratasys, right? Or before that it was Abjet, Stratasys, EOS and uh, 3D systems. And, and I felt that if I could drive a vision and a strategy and get to significant scale, 3D systems will have the opportunity to be an industry-leading company and that would honor the, 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 the legacy of pioneering uh, 3D printing in the first place. And we, and we, and we did that. Uh, it wasn't obvious that we would succeed uh, after 08, but by uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, we were on a terror. When we launched MakerBot, um, I was able to go to all my friends who I knew in industry and in journalism and say, hey, we launched this thing. Check it out. And they were used to me launching things. So they were like, oh, cool. And we, you know, we got a bunch of attention that way. So I would say, you know, your question is sort of like, what, 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 what was it like to, to be <laughs> internet famous in the, in the sort of like very small segment of, of, of iterative uh, additive manufacturing at the time. And I think for me, it was about, you know, I started the, we started this company to basically change the world and I had to become whatever the company needed to get it done. So if I had to be on magazine covers, fine. If I, and, and that, there was some glamor to that. So I'm not complaining about that, if, uh, but there was, a, a, you know, I, there was a lot of, um, and I think people see it more now, but when you have some level of attention from the public, there's a cost to that, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I'm, I can't say that it was all roses, but it was definitely an adventure. I, I feel like with MakerBot, you know, going from three guys, a laser cutter in a dream to a public company, 600 employees selling for $400 million, I had the full like roller coaster startup experience in hardware, which is, I, I'm very grateful for that. Look, to a large extent, I would say that, but for this hype period, probably half of the companies that are playing the space today wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for that hype, probably uh, billions and, uh, and billions and billions of investment dollars would have gone to other industries. If it wasn't for this hype, perhaps elementary schools and high schools would still have only wood shop, but not uh, 3D printing uh, as, as part of their digital literacy. If it wasn't for this technology, maybe the shape of uh, incredible organizations like uh, First Robotics would look very, very differently, you know, the Dean Kamen organization. And I can go on and on. I can say if it wasn't for this technology, you wouldn't have access to it in public libraries all over the U.S. now. And, and so a lot of good came out of it. Also, a lot of jobs. I mean, uh, if you look at the employment in this industry today, relative to the number of people that were actively employed in this industry in uh, 2013, 2014. I'll I mean, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it'll be interesting to look at that. I bet you that uh, the number of people gainfully employed in our industry probably tripled or even quadrupled over the period. So uh, attracting talent, money, interest in making impact in all these areas, I think are also a credit to this hype period and and, and also a credit to uh, some of the people that were documented in, in, in this Print the Legend documentary because like it or not, uh, they were like the, 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 the high uh, priests that communicated the message, especially Bree Pettis, right? I mean, he, he was incredible at, he had that natural gift to communicate. The race to the bottom happened. I remember predicting it, it was like incomprehensible uh, in those days. I said, listen, in a few years, we're gonna see perfectly capable printers on people's desktops and they're gonna cost two or three hundred dollars. And we have that now and 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 it's getting better. So since like I would say sometime in 2014, 2015, you saw these things start to emerge, the really affordable, um, super low cost uh, printers coming out of China. And they're good. So like in general, if you want a low-cost 3D printer, you're you're spending like a few hundred dollars, which makes it just such a you know more a bigger audience, right? Like it's no longer the audience of people who are sort of like have design or architecture firms or have prototyping shops. It's like the per person who wants to make like their own, you know, decorations on their Christmas tree. Look at what happened in education. Uh, and I'm talking about education, not in uh, engineering schools and vocational colleges. I'm talking about elementary school and middle school, uh, there's no question in my mind that that part of what we 
uh, envisaged in uh, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013 actually has happened uh, and happened at scale and continues to happen. So the whole part of uh, giving younger kids and adults digital literacy, giving them the skills so that they can be competitive and also at the same time seeding awareness and in some cases brand loyalty also happened. Uh, it didn't necessarily happen with the players that try to, to uh, be first movers, right? So who tried to be the first movers? Stratasys with the MakerBot acquisition, 3D systems with the Bits from Bytes and other uh, related software and app development uh, capabilities uh, and form labs. Where did these companies uh, succeed and where did they fail? Uh, form labs, I think, is hailed as a great success story. And I think over a period of time, uh, they realized that the path of list resistance and uh, more, call it profitable monetization, probably lies in prosumer applications, mainly in dental and in uh, some prototyping and small scale manufacturing opportunities. Uh, 3D Systems, after I left, uh, decided to uh, mothball some of these activities uh, and exit them altogether. And uh, Stratasys at the end just recently uh, divested itself from MakerBot and allowed it to uh, merge with Ultimaker. Now I think it's it, we're back almost to where we began, where you know we saw when we sold to Stratasys at MakerBot, one of the big challenges was that they sold machines that were very expensive, mm -hmm. and the salespeople in that industry were used to selling a hundred thousand dollar machine and getting you know um, many thousands of dollars in commission on that. And it, it turns out if you do that, maybe you only need to sell one machine a month. Whereas it, when you sell machines that are hundreds or low single digit thousands of dollars, you have to sell a lot more machines and have a totally different strategy. So you see Stratasys and 3D Systems, you know, they have, the MakerBot just got um, uh, spun out of Stratasys and spun into Ultimaker. And the, the sort of race to the bottom strategy, which I've already talked about, has already happened. So it's interesting when where, where the industry is. It's really mixed. It's diverse. There's a lot of people who want to do 3D printing, and so there's a lot of different solutions. The, the other thing that uh, I foresaw and also turned into a reality is that when you democratize the price and also the user experience, uh, price democratization is obvious, right? Bring it down as, as low as you can. Uh, user access democratization is much harder because you need to make this, the system really, really simple and easy to use. Uh, as that happens, what we call today a desktop or a consumer printer is used by many serious, small and medium-sized enterprises as a design tool, as a manufacturing tool uh, every day of the week. And, and so, you know, we haven't yet gotten to the uh, vision of a printer in every home, 
but we're certainly getting closer to a vision of a printer on many uh, engineers and designers and entrepreneurs desk uh, as a professional tool, just like we have, you know, PCs and uh, smartphones and so forth. So we may be taking a little bit of uh, kind of the, the long way around the barn, but at the end, both in price point, the, the monetization, user simplification, and counting all the chickens, right? The, the, the number of units actually deployed. Uh, I think that it has been actually very successful and very disruptive. I, I think that part of the reason why perhaps there is this cynical view in the industry that uh, it hasn't taken is because it's very proliferated. Uh, there are so many good companies, some extremely successful and well-known like uh, Perusa and others, relative unknowns, all making perfectly good uh, devices. And because it's so proliferated, no one today stands out uh, as a unit leader in this category. Uh, and that perhaps adds to, to, to the confusion. The sort of populist consumer product that you know, and that dream that we talked about, we really only talked about that in like 2009, 2010. And by 2011, we had pivoted to talk about engineers and yes. solving problems. But I think it says something that the, the world still remembers that first message we have of, of, of MakerBots for everybody. I think there's some, that fantasy, whether or not it's realistic or not, is still very compelling. This idea that we'll each have our own factory on our desktop is still really, really interesting. I mean, I should say, I, I, I now, I mean, it's interesting. I'm still making machines. I make desktop CNC machines now. Mm -hmm. I, I make machines that make things out of metal. And I'm, I'm essentially doing the same things that I did at MakerBot, taking mm -hmm. something that's really big, really expensive, really difficult, and making it smaller, more accessible, more affordable, and easier to use. That's yeah. that's still my jam. I'm like, it's, you know, 10 years later or whatever, and I'm still doing the same thing. Two hundred exhibitors, four stages, one hundred speakers, and one thousand years of combined experience. CCT 360 is firmly established as the UK's definitive 3D printing and additive manufacturing event and registration is now open. Between the 7th and 8th of June this year, TCT360 will bring together market-leading technology suppliers and services, as well as the largest free additive manufacturing conference on the planet. TCT360 is a free, must-attend event for anyone looking to evaluate, adopt, or optimize 3D printing technology within their business. Join us on the 7th and 8th of June at the NEC in Birmingham. To register, go to www tct360.com So much of this film is about startups and when we spoke to the team behind the film they said that the idea was that they wanted to come in and see if they could be that crew for the next Macintosh moment and there's so many references to Steve Jobs and, and the tough decisions CEOs have to make and the influence of that on startup culture throughout the film 
What were some of the biggest challenges for you? Was it the decisions around things like open source stuff and the reactions to that? Where did the biggest difficulties emerge? I mean, um, the the biggest difficulty, I mean, I think in, in, in growing a company is making decisions that affect other people's lives. A company in many ways is an organic life form that has a, a life of its own. And we all work there. And we also, we're all doing that for one reason or another, where for some people it's just to make money. For other people, they want to see something exist in the world that doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the hardest part is when, you, when it was having to make decisions that involved like letting people go or changing the team. And you know that, that year of 2013, MakerBot grew from 100 people to 600 people. And we cycled through 500 people that year. So we actually hired 1,000 people that year. Mm-hmm and then cycled through so many people. So it was a really, and we were just trying to hold on. Like we had too many orders. We couldn't meet demand. People were criticizing us from all directions. And we were just trying to, to meet the demand of what people wanted. So it was, uh, I think, you know, I, I think I'm still learning this today, but I think the hardest thing is just disappointing other people by having to make, by making, by making decisions about the business is probably the hardest thing I, I don't know if everybody would agree with me, but I think a lot of CEOs uh, of startups would agree that that's one of the hardest things to do. Since I uh, left 3D Systems and uh, tried my hand first at uh, making investments in startups and then joined some and made other investments, I learned a lot about this. And so what I learned is that there are many reasons why startups fail. And the the stats are are quite sobering. About uh, eighty five to ninety percent of all startups end up failing. One of the top five reasons is culture, uh, and a lot of this has to do just with uh, people, personalities, egos, uh, sometimes. Uh, how one defines success and uh, the headiness of sometimes raising a lot of money and thinking that just because you did that, you've already arrived, even though you still don't have market fit and you don't have validated case studies and you haven't quite transitioned through the proving, nailing and scaling. And and so that's that's about you know one uh, one of the top five reasons is dysfunctional culture. Where does it comes from? It, it comes from people. It comes from family systems. It comes from our coping skills. Uh, it comes from uh, egos and sometimes narcissism and all of the uh, if you will delicious parts of the human condition and absent sometimes uh, an adult in the room or some ability to understand it and know that A, it's normal and B, there are ways to effectively manage through that. It could eat companies alive because there is no shortage of strong personalities amongst uh, founders and entrepreneurs. This happens quite a bit when, when people grow small companies big. And, you know, I have my strengths and 
um, everybody has their strengths, like what they're good at, and then you have what you're good at and what you like to do, and you have what you're good at but you don't like to do, and you have what you have to do but that you don't like, and you have the things that you don't like and you're not good at at all. Like those are like four quadrants, right? Like of, of good at, bad at, like it, don't like it. And I'd gotten to the place where I, you know, part of the thing for me with MakerBot is I had to become whatever the company needed. So, you know, I had become somebody who um, could make pretty intense decisions around other people's lives to support the company. That was not my, you know, at that scale, it was difficult. I had become somebody who could make decisions. But I had also become somebody who'd gotten really good at hiring really smart people. And as somebody who's kind of a jack of all trades, and likes to dabble in lots of things, and loves to um, try out new things and explore the frontier. I wasn't, and when the company got bigger, I wasn't so good at, at, at I don't know, I, I, it's not so that much that I wasn't so, maybe I wasn't good at it, but I started to lose interest for me. Like mm -hmm. I couldn't, it was so much, it, like I had become a manager, right? I'd become a, a large company CEO, and the CEOs in the audience are going to know, like it's a major, it's a major. You make a lot of trades to to be in that position, and it's not they're not all good. So, um, and I had hired just this amazing team at you know in 2013, where we were firing on all cylinders. We were just killing it. I had a sales team, a marketing team, I had an innovation team. You know, we had half a million square feet in Industry City in Brooklyn. We had like 300 or 350 people working, making, doing assembly. We were getting, we were still getting more orders than we could, than we could, than we could meet. And it was super exciting. But at the same time, I'd hired everybody who was good at what they did. When you hire a whole team of people who are better at you at literally everything you do, you sort of sit back and you, you're like, okay, well, what do I do now? I ended up basically going to Stratasys after we sold the company and saying, okay, I've literally hired everybody who's better than me at what they do, and I'm bored. So what I'd like to do is get all the machines that we have in the Stratasys portfolio and do cool stuff with them, make stuff. Because with MakerBot, we'd shown people what you could make with a MakerBot, and people had gotten into it. But Stratasys had all these machines, and still does have all these machines that were hard to show what they do because they're so, because there aren't that many of them. So with Bold Machines, the idea was to get all these really cool machines, the, the, the sort of object heritage machines that um, the Polyjet, now, they're, now I think they, they use the term Polyjet. We had, uh, we had the, um, at the time, Solidscape was in the, in the Stratasys mix. Mm -hmm. So we had these wax 3D printers, which were just so, like the layer resolution was six microns. It was so cool. And we did stuff with, um, we did, you know, we did all sorts of stuff we could with artists to make cool stuff, and that was a blast. We were just getting off and running, but another thing happened when I left MakerBot, which is the stock uh, at Stratasys started to fall. Started MakerBot, Stratasys was at about twenty dollars a unit for stock. When we sold MakerBot, we did something very um, unique in the industry at that time, and that we the whole purchase price was in stock, which means for Stratasys, they just minted new stock and it cost them nothing. For, but the stock at that point was $80. The stock over the next like six to eight months went up to like $130. Mm -hmm. And then I handed the reins over to my number two and then they replaced, uh, Stratasys replaced her right after that. And 
Um, and I stepped down into bold machines, and the stock started to tumble. And when this happens, you have a whole industry that's just waiting for this to happen of sharks. And they're like, great, we're going to go in and we're going to interview all the ex-employees and see if there's some way we can find out that the company failed its investors and is liable for the loss of, uh, the loss of value in the stock. And interestingly enough, usually this, this, it's a SEC lawsuit kind of a thing. And in the end, they didn't find anything. They dug pretty hard, and but it was pretty like I, I, you know, in terms of the full experience, I also got to learn all about how that whole world works. But the stock ended up going back down to like eighteen twenty, which for folks who were, uh, and I would say in the in the investing community, that's a pretty big slap in the face when somebody's been excited about an industry and they see it grow, and then it shrinks back down in value. That's a hard. That was a hard pill to swallow, and uh, you can look at the uh, the Gartner hype cycle, and it pretty well. It, you know, we we were on that roller coaster of going up the hype cycle and then going back down, and after the hype cycle, there's a slow climb. So we're still in the slow climb back to back to back up, um, and then after. So once the stock started falling, every they had to basically tighten the belt on everything. So I uh, I volunteered to move on and. Ended up starting my own thing with Breen Co. and then Advanced Tools. So what were your learnings from this time and, and how are you applying them in this latest venture? I mean, one of the, the beautiful things about, about MakerBot was that we really just tried stuff. We were fearless about trying stuff. We put stuff out in the world that what the world wasn't ready for and, we, and frankly wasn't really ready for the world. The good part about that was that we were just aggressive and got to just enjoy the like cutting edge frontier as a company. The hard part was, you know, we we made missteps, so we didn't always. We, and sometimes we we stepped a little bit over the edge, which um, so I feel like where I'm at now and where Bantam Tools is now is we can we can take our time. So. You know, for example, we just launched the Bantam Tools Explorer CNC milling machine. This is a really tidy 42-pound milling machine that fits in a Pelican case, has a, has a build volume of, of 4 by 6 by 2 and 3 quarters inches, and just plows through aluminum uh, like all day long, like nobody's business. And we launched this at IMTS in, and had an awesome time at IMTS. We won top 10 at IMTS, which is a... International Manufacturing Technology Show, which is a big deal in, in sort of the machining world. And, uh, and we're, um, since we've launched, we've been getting everything up and ready. And I think a, older, a younger me would have like already started shipping machines, even though they weren't ready. And a little bit, with a little bit more maturity, I can say, okay, we have customers that are waiting, but it's actually better to take a little bit more time and put all the polish on everything and get everything set before we ship. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe a little more patience uh, in terms of uh, now is, is probably all, I, that's probably a little bit different. And then having made so many mistakes and so many, um, you know, tried out so many different things with MakerBot, as you get older, you don't, you, you, you learn both what you like to do and what you don't like to do. And sometimes learning what learning what you don't like to do is, is more important than what you do. So I think trying to, trying to keep it very, a very grounded company rooted in precision and reliability. Look, I, I learned that there are 
ages and stages in a growth of a company and that with every age and stage you have to apply different tools and different skills and uh, I also learned another painful reason and that is that the people that you come into the journey with may not be the people that can graduate to uh, other parts of the journey and if you can't continuously evolve and grow the team uh, not just the internal team but also your board and other constituents then you can get into periods of misalignment and that can be very costly to 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 the enterprise uh, so that's one very important lesson and you know th there is a lot of talk nowadays about corporate culture and all of that I mean we're kind of seeing the extremes of what's happening with companies like Twitter and others but uh, it's not just about a healthy culture it's also about healthy alignment uh, it's also about agency to make change and to do what needs to be done and it's about agility and flexibility because there are different seasons uh, on the journey and not all of them can be dealt with using the same tools and the same skills uh, and uh, so that's that's another uh, important lesson uh, for myself personally uh, I learned that I enjoy much more the earlier stages of building uh, a business uh, and it gets much more daunting and uh, if you will suffocating when you get to be uh, a billion dollar company or two billion dollar companies the uh the, the the very things that attract me like entrepreneurship and uh creating and standing things up kind of get harder to do at that level because you end up as a CEO managing dozens of other activities that keep the machinery going but uh, are not as interesting for me at this stage in my life right it's uh, been there done that twice and uh for decades and that I know how to do it but it doesn't really gets my juices flowing anymore at the time I, I I cared quite a bit about what people thought about me in the public eye so this film coming out and being pretty critical was was a bummer so I, for me, that one of the takeaways is since then has just been that, like you know, it's just not that important what other people think of you, and and that something about self-esteem coming from the inside or some sort of like, you know, generalist positive saying is is probably ringing true there. Like it, it's important to sort of take your own stock of your life and and be aware of that instead of caring so much about what other people think. I think the um, that's me personally. I think for the industry, we, um, you know, I, 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 I miss Maker Bot in many ways because of this feeling of team, and just how innovative we were, just how brutal we were in terms of being willing 
to get to the next stage and do something that hadn't been done before. That sort of thrill is a real exciting thing that I think um, you don't, is, is not, you don't get every day. I think it's one of the things that makes MakerBot really special is how aggressively we attacked what's next. As a machine maker, I create machines that allow people who are trying to innovate the ability to try out their ideas and explore the, their ideas in a way to, to figure out who, the, who they are, I guess, in some ways, but also to figure out what the product is. Part of this is around iteration and ability to make mistakes. Um, if you, you, know, you can look at you know, any, any number of decisions I've made and criticize them, and, and I'll own that. I think the only way you really move forward in life is if you try things out and you're willing to make mistakes. And, and our machine is, allows people to, to, to iterate quickly. And when you have an iteration cycle that you know, is, is hours instead of weeks, it allows you to, to, to try things out more. It allows you to take risks quicker. You know, when you have a desktop CNC machine and you want to make a part, you can, just, you can make it instead of having to wait. Avi, you mentioned that you felt a great responsibility as the CEO of one of the industry's leading companies. And I wondered firstly how you and your leadership team feel like you handled that responsibility, but also what you see as your responsibility today in a new chapter with a new company. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'm probably my own worst critic. And uh, so, you know, there isn't a day that I don't get up in the morning and uh, begin to think, well, I should have done this and I should have done that. And not just about things that happened a decade ago, but about things that happened yesterday. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, kind of, uh, uh, I guess it makes me who I am in good and in, uh, and, and in failure. Uh, I think that our management team overall handled the period uh, reasonably well, as I mentioned, you know, by the time that this print the legend uh, film came out, uh, 3D Systems was in its uh, 15 or 16 successive quarter of uh, making a lot of free cash and growing the company uh, exponentially and, and enjoying that. Uh, the fruits of our labors and uh, at its height, I mean, some people say at its height, but at its height, the, the valuation of 3D systems was uh, $10 billion. Just, just to kind of uh, explain that, that part of it. So, and, and we had really good people in the company, not just at the leadership level, but across the board. How I'm handling or how I'm thinking about my responsibilities today, it's the, the size and stage of Nexa 3D uh, is obviously much smaller. And the opportunity to learn what to do and what not to do and what to build and not what to build is the gift of the past if you pay attention, right? If not, you just have a do-over. Uh, and I feel even because I know what I know and because I have a chance to reflect on all the things that worked and didn't work, uh, I, I have a better chance at being a better coach and a better leader today than I did perhaps 10 years ago. 
And I also have the, the luxury of stage and uh, being a private company at this point in time to uh, really work towards what we think matters and not be confused by other uh, forces that pull you in, 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 in different directions. Uh, ultimately, it's it's the, the responsibility of running any size company is the responsibility to uh, your co-workers and your team to be a good custodian of the trust that they place in you. It's a responsibility to your investors to make sure that you allocate the money that they give you very in, in frugal ways to the best of your ability. And uh, it's a responsibility to your family because uh, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have the support of uh, my wife every day because uh, she gets to see me home after a good day uh, and also after a bad day. And if I didn't have her support, uh, I couldn't do what I'm doing because I'm spending more, most of my time working. And so I have that responsibility as well. When I think about the, the, the 3D printing world, I think, uh, you know, in many ways, we were the beginning of taking established technology and finding ways to make it affordable. And I think at some point, probably recently or now, like we're sort of at the tail end of the making something that already existed affordable. And you're seeing things like the desktop metal and other um, the sort of metal 3D printers that sort of require that you have a foundry as well. That's where a lot of the innovation is. And I think the hard part is that the next level of innovation is going to is going to require the same kind of innovation that Crump and Hull had back in, you know, the um, the 90s of mm. actually inventing new ways to do things. And that is a much, much more challenging and deep respect to those guys and the, and the innovation teams at 3D Systems and Stratasys for their early work because they they invented they they truly invented the industry, right? So to go forward to to, to since we've in many ways, commoditize so much of those innovations, we have to find new innovations. And I think that some of those things will be in the, in the, um, in the 3D printing space, some of them will be in the CNC space, some of them will be in the, in, uh, there's a lot of innovation to be done in the automation side of things of, you know, how do you use not just one 3D printer or CNC machine, but hundreds of them to, to solve problems that at scale. Um, how do you make? How do you? You know? How do you solve those kind of problems? Those are the interesting problems now, more than the technology is. How do you use the technology to do interesting things? I believe in every fiber of my being uh, in democratizing access to three uh, D printing, and I'm trying to do it every day when I get up in the morning now. Uh, through uh, and with my incredible team at Nexa 3D. And uh, I think we have shown just in the last uh, few periods how serious we are about uh, tools like the Zip from, from, from start to finish. And we're actually, you know, walking the talk, if you will. I, I think that when you believe in something, you have to persevere and you also have to pivot when you see 
obstacles and when you see that your vision is way ahead of what is possible in the here and now. But uh, I, I, I will wear that uh, assertion or that uh, title as a badge of honor because I also think that uh, we have a responsibility to use our God-given skills and resources uh, in, in, in the best way that we know how. Uh, otherwise, we just squander all these talents and gifts. Uh, and I think that when you also have the opportunity to really follow your passion, uh, you have to persevere. And I'm, I'm not trying to win any uh, public you know, offices here or public uh, or to win in, in, in a court of public opinion. I'm, I'm trying to do what I believe in what I know how to do to the best of my ability. Uh, and God willing, if I'm still healthy, I'll be doing it 10 years from now. And, uh, you know, the ultimate, if you will, scorecard or judgment is that I'm hoping that I will live this world a little better than I found it. That's, uh, and if I do that, then, you know, it'll be a good life. Shout out to the MakerBot and Ultimaker teams, now Ultimaker with a capital M. There is so much talent there, and and they put, uh, the, the, the investors of Ultimaker and, and Stratasys put in like $60 million, and, you know, MakerBot was built with only $11.2 million, and we didn't really even spend that. So the idea that this combined company has $60 million to spend, I think there's so much talent there, and they're really smart folks at MakerBot and Ultimaker, now Ultimaker. I, I wouldn't count them out. Like I wouldn't say, oh, the story's over. I think that there's there's the talent there is going to is I'm I'm rooting for them. I'm excited for them. Mm -hmm.